you know, I'll come into class and say, hey, we're going to do this lesson. But before we start, I have to tell you about The Princess Diarist by Carrie Fisher. It's so great. (laughs) You should read it. Hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 123. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Today's guest is a reader who loves to laugh. Rissy Lundberg wrote into the show and told me she's been a listener from the very beginning, yet she has never heard her favorite titles discussed on air. I knew I had to have her on the show to remedy that situation as soon as possible. Rissy is a high school math teacher with a bookish bent. She even assigns English literature as math homework. Today, I'm investigating what titles Rissy assigns to those students. Plus, we chat about books that won't make you cry, books rooted in vocation, knockout audiobooks, and much more. Let's get to it. Rissy, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So you're in Wisconsin, yes? Yes, I am, Milwaukee. Okay, now we are talking on a weekday, but you're a high school math teacher. How does that work? Well, I'm really fortunate. I have a first hour student teacher, so she's teaching while I'm able to record. And you get to talk about books and reading while she covers the math. Yes. Rissy, I was very intrigued by something you said to me when we talked about you coming on the show. And that is that you have been listening to What Should I Read Next since the beginning, which is a long time now. So that's... yes hundreds, probably maybe even a thousand or more books discussed? I think so. But you said that you've never heard your favorites mentioned. I have not. We'll get to that eventually, but I would love to hear about your reading life, what it is you're reading that's clearly different from what we've been talking about on the show. Well, when I listen to the show, I hear a lot of people talk about how they like to ugly cry. I think that was Jamie Golden who said that (laughs) a few weeks ago. And I was like, oh, okay. I I don't know. I don't like to ugly cry. Also, I hear people talk about liking to go dark or books that haunt them for days. And that it's not really my style. I prefer books that are either instructive or more joyful, that when I read it, I can put it down, especially at night when I'm reading in bed, I can set it aside and say, ah, I feel good. I can go to sleep now and have pleasant dreams. (laughs) (laughs) Have you always known this about yourself or did it take years to figure out the pattern? Uh, No, I think I've always known this. Uh, Some of my early favorite books were Pride and Prejudice. Read that one in high school. Also, Anne of Green Gables. Loved it. And I just loved the joy, the spirit. I mean, I read a lot. I read pretty widely. But the books that I truly love that follow me that I reread are the happier books. Now, you mentioned you often read before bed. What are the rhythms of your reading life like? I have a semi-long commute, 20 to 30 minutes every day. I listen to audiobooks while I drive, which helps get a lot of extra books in that I wouldn't read otherwise. Also, sometimes during lunch at school, I'll have my lunch and I'll read a book. I come home, sit on the couch, read a book. But then at night when I'm getting into bed, I like something light, but also that has a good literary quality that I can drift off to sleep with some good language. Do you find those books to be easy to find? I don't. I was talking with my sister about this the other day, who has the same preference as I do, that she likes books that are happy and joyful, 
but that are well-written. And we were talking about how difficult it is to find, kind of like the Oscar movies that are dominated. Always the best pictures are super sad or really dramatic, and there's never a comedy that's nominated for best picture which is unfortunate, I think. So you've obviously had some time to think about this. Mm -hmm. Does it seem to you that it's hard to write literary works and be funny? Or do you think it's just easier to have the appearance of writing seriously if you're very, very serious about the content? That's a great question. I think both of those are true. It's easy to make people cry. All you have to do is talk about a dead dog and everybody's falling all over themselves crying. But to write something that is widely appealing, that's humorous or joyful, I think that's harder to do. Okay. You keep saying joyful, a pervasive tone throughout or a hopeful note at the end. I think either one, like one of my favorite books that I did not choose for this, but I really like A Christmas Carol by Charles Mm -hmm. Dickens. I read that every year and that's not joyful throughout. You know, he's a grouchy old man who has these visitors from his past that show him things that he really regrets and is sorry about. But at the end, he is a repentant and it's joyful at the end. You know, A lot of times when I'm reading, I wish my characters, my characters, the characters I'm clearly invested in, I wish that they would make better choices in life. And I wish that they could be happy. And I wish that their relationships could work out on the first try, or at least the second and not the 15th as often happens in the pages of the book. And I have to remind myself that plots move forward because bad things happen. And there is no novel without tension. And that is the nature of the thing. So on that level, I can see why it could be hard to find books with that tone. It's not impossible, right? I hope not. No, and I found some good ones over the years. You mentioned that you like to read instructive works as well. Could you tell me a little about that? Well, I'm sitting here at school and I have the calculus story, A Mathematical Adventure. I'm super (laughs) excited about that one. Honestly, that's not what I expected. (laughs) It just came out. And thanks to you, I pre-ordered it to support good authors. I like all sorts of books. Braving the Wilderness, Barking to the Choir. Have you heard of that one? No, I don't know that. Oh my gosh. It was so good. I gave it five stars. It's a a follow-up to another one called Tattoos on the Heart. (gasps) Yeah, I do know that one. Same author? Same author, Gregory Boyle where he talks about his homeboy industries that he sets up in Los Angeles and works with gang members to um, rehabilitate them. Super interesting, really motivating, instructive. Let's see another one. Oh, Hidden Figures. I read that one Mm -hmm. recently, of course. (laughs) Of course. I do like nonfiction. Um, Oh, I like cookbooks, interestingly enough. I'm reading one right now called Around My French Table Uh by Dory Greenspan. But I like ones that have essays in them that talk about the food or the the culture that goes around the food. Also, Smitten Kitchen, who I read Hunger, A Memoir of My Body Mm -hmm. by Roxanne Gay. Mm -hmm. That was really intense, but so good. I do like memoirs where the person had a really difficult life experience, a really difficult childhood, but then their reflections on it later. Yeah, it's much easier for me to think of really smart, funny memoirs than literary okay. fiction. I wonder why that is. What are some of your favorites? Well, that one I liked. I did. I really liked Born a Crime, mm. stories from a South African childhood. Yes, that's one I thought of that is very oh. serious subject matter. But I mean, he can he can make you laugh so hard you cry. Yes, yes. I was just talking with my sister. She just listen to it on Audible, which I also did. So, so did I. Good. Oh, <laughs> well, I really liked his Audible narration because there's a lot of pieces of African languages that he speaks it really well and it sounds nice. And if I were reading that myself, I would not get the same experience of hearing those beautiful languages. I liked listening to it. Um, what else? 
I've read the little book of Huga, the Danish way of living well. I've seen it everywhere, but I haven't read it. I know what you're talking about. And the follow-up, the little book of Luca. It's a follow-up one, yeah. which I like those. And also they have beautiful graphs in there, which appeals to me as a math teacher. <laughs> those books, I'm a little on the fence about them lately. I feel like those are books that are published by people in different countries, Denmark, Sweden, wherever, that say, look how happy we are. You should, you know, too bad you can't be like us. And I feel like those are the book equivalent of social media posts. Look at my perfect family and my mm-hmm. perfect vacation. Mm-hmm where I can, I can only take those in small doses. Okay. Now, in talking about your reading life, you've said as a math teacher several times, do you think that really influences the way you choose your books or what kind of enjoyment you draw from certain kinds of titles? That's a good question. I'm not sure. I do read a lot of books that have to do with math, either for my own enjoyment or for sharing with my class. I have my students read sometimes. In geometry, I have them read Flatland every year by Edwin Abbott. The Dot in the Line by Norton Juster, we've read. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I know. Every year at the end of the school year, I read it to them. They bring cookies and I read it to them as the wrap up to the year. And it's super cute and fun. Also, Lewis Carroll, he wrote a book of logic puzzles. And when we're studying logic and geometry, I give them those puzzles. And they're really hard, but they're kind of literary and... The students struggle with them, but it's a good struggle. Now, it's been a long time since I sat in math class, but it's definitely my impression that assigning books to your students, assigning mm-hmm. English works to your students is not the norm. I don't think it is. No. What inspired you to do that? And how do you find it worthwhile in the classroom? Well, when I was in graduate school, I had a professor who commented that when he was in high school, his teacher I think either assigned it or read Flatland to them. And he said, it changed my life. I was so inspired by it. I thought, oh, that's a great idea. I'll do that because I love books and I love math. Maybe I can make that work in my classroom. And it's really good. So in geometry, you know, we study points, lines, planes, and then we study solid shapes. And then at the end, we talk about Flatland, which discusses the possibility of higher dimensional space. So that's how I introduce to them that mathematicians work in four and five dimensions. And then we can have a discussion about what that means, how how you can work in something that you can't visualize. And also, it's a little lighter. We don't do a heavy, heavy analysis and they don't mm-hmm. have to write essays. We just do it because it's interesting. Even though I teach math, I like all sorts of books. So I recommend books to students. You know, I'll come into class and say, hey, we're going to do this lesson. But before we start, I have to tell you about The Princess Diarist by Carrie Fisher. It's so great. (laughs) You should read it. (laughs) Was that a recent read? It was. Okay. So this is the one you were just talking about. That was my juicy memoir from your reading guide from last year. And it was juicy. (laughs) It was. I'm glad it delivered. Also, I was going through all of my books the other day, getting rid of some and kind of weeding out. And I thought, I don't want to sell these necessarily. So I, I set up a little free library outside my classroom. Oh, I love it. I know. It's so fun. And I don't have a lot of books. I have one solid shelf, mm-hmm. but I'm hoping that other teachers will be inspired and we can get a good cross-section of literature and biography and science. I would love to see a really well-stocked high school library, little library shelf. Rissy, I am so curious to hear about your specific titles. Okay. And first, I just love this quote you shared with me that I'd never heard before from Alexander McCall Smith. He said that one can write about amusing subjects and still remain within the realm of serious fiction. Are we going to hear that in your favorites? Um, no, 
<laughs> but I do like him and I do love that quote. <laughs> have you ever seen him in person? I have. Oh, it was so exciting. At our local bookstore, Boswell Books, owned by Daniel Golden. I don't know what the occasion was, but it was just a few months ago and he came and I took my mom and it was like a concert for book lovers. We were all in this bookstore and yeah, it was great. I just thought he was hilarious and I loved him. That's what made me ask. We were talking about happy reading experiences and he came to my local library when, like right after Emma, A Modern Retelling came out. Oh yeah. Which wasn't my favorite Alexander McCall Smith, but it sure was fun to hear him talk about because he had a great sense of humor about tackling Jane Austen, but he wore a kilt. He had a delightful accent. He told hilarious stories. It was a great night. You know, I travel a lot. I have two sisters and they live in really interesting locations. And one sister was living in- Where do they live? Well, I have one sister. She lived in Uh Australia for three years and now she lives in Montreal. And of course, I visited her there multiple times in Australia and in Montreal. And then my other sister, her husband works for the U.S. State Department. So they've lived in Norway and Botswana and now they live in Malaysia. Oh, wow. And of course, Botswana, that's where the ladies' number one detective agency books take Mm -hmm. place. My sister had a tutor for the kids who came and helped them with their math homework. And she said, oh, this is the perfect book. It always makes us laugh. It really captures Botswana so well. And so I thought, well, while I'm here, I have to reread it. And I have a, a picture of myself reading it on a plane while drinking a cup of Redbush tea. That's perfect. It was perfect. It was. I'm experiencing bookworm envy right now, but we're not going to hear that in your favorites about the humor. Okay. Well, I'm curious to hear what they are. Are you ready to dive in? I'm ready to go. Yep. All right, Rissy, you know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you're reading now. And then we'll talk about hopefully smart literary fiction and nonfiction you should read next. That sounds great. All right. What's your first favorite? My first favorite is A Damsel in Distress by P.G. Woodhouse. This book I describe to friends that I want to recommend it to as Downton Abbey, if Downton Abbey were a comedy, (laughs) which I think that's a huge selling point because everybody loves Downton Abbey, right? I love Downton Abbey. It was published in 1919 and it centers around a family living in this great house. There's Lord Marsh Morton, his sister, Lady Caroline, Maud, and Percy, his children. So Lord Marsh Morton loves gardening, roses. His sister, Lady Caroline, wants him to be writing the family history, but he doesn't want to. He's always trying to get out of it somehow. Then there's his children, Maud, who is in love with Geoffrey. And then she later meets George Bevan, who falls in love with her, but she can't be with him because she loves Jeffrey, but she hasn't seen Jeffrey in a year. And so George Bevan kind of moves to the neighborhood and is trying to trying to woo her. Then there's Percy, Maud's brother, who wants to protect the family name and the, doesn't want Maud to get involved in these crazy characters. So that's the family. But then downstairs, there's Kegs the butler, Albert the page boy, all the servants who... <laughs> I don't know. They're just, it's a really fun cast of characters. They're all putting in bets to decide who Maud is going to marry at the end. And based on who they have money invested in, that's who they give help and aid to throughout the story. And I do have a paragraph that I marked that I would like to read if that's okay. Oh, yes, please. Okay. So this is the, they're having a a coming of age party for Percy, the son. And so everybody's there at this party. 
The floor was crowded with all that was best and noblest in the country, so that a half-brick hurled at any given moment must infallibly have spilt blue blood. Peers stepped on the toes of knights, honorables bumped into the spines of baronets. Probably the only titled person in the whole of the surrounding county who was not playing his part in the glittering scene was Lord Marsh Martin, who, on discovering that his private study had been converted into a cloakroom, had retired to bed with a pipe and a copy of Roses Red and Roses White by Emily Ann McIntosh, which he was to discover after he was between the sheets and it was too late to repair the error, was not, as he had supposed, a treatise on his favorite hobby, but a novel of Serentine sentimentality dealing with the adventures of a pure young English girl and an artist named Claude. Well, I know what you need to read next, and I hope you haven't read it yet. Are you going to tell me now or later? I'm going to tell you later. All right, I'll wait. I can be patient. (laughs) (laughs) Rizzy, what's your next favorite? My next favorite is A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again by David Foster Wallace. Who I do not think of as being a lighthearted writer. Yeah, he really really is. This one was recommended by my brother-in-law who reads extensively and he just said, this is just a funny book. You should really read it. So I, I trusted him and I dove in and it really is, it's fun. This particular book is a collection of essays that he wrote for different magazines, and they would send him places, and he would write down his observations. So a couple of the essays that I particularly like, one where he goes to the Illinois State Fair, and another where he goes on a seven-night Caribbean cruise. (laughs) And uh, just like the stories he tells about it are so funny, like just people watching while waiting to embark, or clothing ranging from corporate informal to tourist tropical or he talks about Petra, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, who cleans his room, but he almost never sees her. And he tries to set a trap. Like he's like, if I leave for a half an hour, I always come back and my bed is made and there's a new mint on the pillow. But I never, like, how does she know that I'm gone? Is she watching me? I don't know. <laughs> that sounds like that could be hysterical in his hands. It really was. And also, I don't know how much David Foster Wallace you've read, but he plays around with footnotes a lot. So he has these pithy observations about the Illinois State Fair or this cruise. And then he has a footnote. So you go down to the bottom of the page and it's another pithy observation about the pithy observation he just made. I think I've read that Illinois State Fair piece in a magazine. I've tried to read Infinite Jest several times. I haven't made it through. I haven't even tried. Well done. (laughs) Oh, it's so big. You know, my sister, the sister who's married to the brother-in-law who recommended this book, he told her, I don't think you could handle Infinite Jest. It's just too much. And she, of course, said, well, challenge accepted. I will, I'll take it on. And she read the whole thing. And Is she urging you to read it next? She's not. Okay. She, she did it because she was dared to, but I don't think she cared for it as much as she likes. She does like his essays. The last one I read in its entirety was Consider the Lobster, where he does a whole lot with the footnotes. Yes, yes. I think that's kind of his thing, is the footnotes. Mm -hmm. Also, I did try to read Consider the Lobster. There's the one essay at the beginning, though. It's really long, all about the porn industry. Do you remember that? No, I remember nothing. It's entirely possible I skipped right over that. It was awful. No, I because it was for a book club. And, oh, man, I plowed through it. It was It was painful. And I told my brother-in-law about it later. And I said, wow, that, that piece on porn, that was, it was just horrible. And he was like, oh, I skipped it. I, <laughs> I, I couldn't finish it. So that's my experience with Consider the Lobster. Well, that is good to hear. And for readers taking notes. And I have to make one point about um, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. It is mentioned in Bossy Pants by Tina Fey. There's a chapter in there called A Supposedly Fun Thing That I Will Also Never Do Again. <laughs> I loved Bossy Pants, but I do not remember that. 
You should go back because she talks about her own experience going on a seven-day Caribbean cruise with her <laughs> husband and how awful it is. Oh, man. I need to go back and reread that one, too. Yeah, I remember nothing. I feel like that just came out, but it's been at least four or five years. It's been a while. Yeah. That's another one that I really liked, but I had to listen to it. To really enjoy it and get the cadence and yes, really feel like exactly. you're in the story. I tried reading it a couple of times and I was like, eh, it's okay. But then when I listened to it, I was like, ah, there she is. There's her voice. And I appreciate it a lot more. Rissy, what's another favorite? Another favorite is All Creatures Great and Small by James Harriet. Mm-hmm. What do you love about this one? A lot of people look at this book and they think, oh, it's about animals. But really, it's about relationships between people. So James Harriet is a vet in the Yorkshire Dales during, I want to say, the 1930s, 1920s, 1930s. And he goes around to all these farms. This is before tractors were really in vogue. And people still had draft horses pulling their wagons and cattle to be dealt with and pigs and dogs and cats. So he has lots of people that he goes and takes care of their animals. So he writes these stories about his interactions with the animals, but mostly his interactions with the people. And they're just, they range from hilarious to heartwarming to heartbreaking occasionally, but they all just have a really good spirit to them that I love and I enjoy it. There's this sense of community and togetherness and, um, Am I seeing more than is actually there to think there's a strong theme of vocation running through also? Oh, I don't know. I hadn't even considered that, but I do like the idea of vocation. When you're writing about that, you can be noble without being sappy. Yes. Like I love stories of people who found their calling in life. As a math teacher, I tell people I teach high school math and people recoil in horror and they cringe and cry a little bit. But I say, no, this this is my vocation. This is the calling that I've found. And I love it. And I love to read stories about other people who have found a vocation that they love. Rissy, what's a book that you're not so crazy about? In the Unlikely Event by Judy Bloom. Did not like it. So I know it's about a plane crash. It is. But I haven't read this one. It kind of encapsulates two genres or two things about books that I really don't like. Ooh, a twofer. I like it. A twofer, yes. Kind of, yes. This holds a lot of, there's a lot of material in here to look at. So the story is that three planes crashed in one town within the space of, I want to say, three months. And this is true. I'm not sure the name of the town, but within the space of just a few months, three planes crashed. So Judy Bloom took this historical event and created a story around it. Now, this points to the first difficulty that I have. Historical fiction is sometimes difficult for me, especially when it involves a really specific event or a really specific person. While I'm reading, just the way my brain works, I'm always thinking, did that really happen? Mm -hmm. And then I run and I Google it. And then I come back, did that, is that how it really played out? And then I run and Google it. And I I have a hard time getting lost in the story. Mm -hmm. Also, I feel like there's so many things that could have gone to flesh out this story, like conspiracy theories or the town coming together. But the whole thing devolved into the romantic and dating lives of teenagers, which I I can't, I can't do it. I hate that. Is a human being or is a high school teacher or both? Kind of both. It just reminds me of my high school experience Mm -hmm. and how uncomfortable and awkward and angsty it was. And it's not a time in my life I like to revisit through fiction. And also as a high school teacher, honestly, I don't really see those things. Maybe it's because I teach math and we never talk about the things that literature can bring up and people, we just talk about math. So so if you have any YA on the list, I'm not crazy about YA. (laughs) 
I, do, I, do, I am okay with middle grade though. You know, I was just talking about this with my daughter who loves and adores the mother-daughter book club so much. It's a series of six, I think it's now seven books. Mother-daughter book camp, I think came out a year or two ago to round out the series after a several year gap. The series is set in New England. It's about girls who I think you meet when they're in middle school and they're in high school by the time the series ends. Their mothers are very much part of the story as well. I like that. There's the one mother who's obsessed with Jane Austen and named her kids Darcy and Elizabeth, I think. No, Emma. Darcy and Emma. That is obsessed. And watches the Colin Firth, Jennifer Ella, Pride and Prejudice every New Year's Eve. It's her tradition. (laughs) So we make all the jokes about that at New Year's, but we still haven't done it. Although my daughter is open to the idea. That sounds great. But you know, there are friend tensions and everything, but there's nothing over the top and nothing that makes me go, oh, I wish you weren't reading that. They're realistic. They're relatable. They're kind of feel good stories. And my Mm -hmm. daughter wants to read a lot more like it. And it's so hard to find. No, I, I get it. And you know what I really like about that series that you just mentioned, which I haven't read, but I'm I'm going to put it on the list, is that the mothers are involved. I feel like so many times with YA, and they're trying to get away from the parents. They push the parents aside. We can We can solve the problems on our own. We don't need those stupid adults to help us. I'm beginning to appreciate stories where I see the parent involved. My other daughter is reading a YA novel for school right now, and it's about girls who are four or five years older than her. And there Mm. is drama up the wazoo. And um, Mm. there's boys and drugs, and she's like, is this really what high school is like? I'm like, oh, honey, novels starve on tension. Like just what we were talking about earlier. (laughs) And, you know, bad stuff makes a really great, inciting event. And Mm. uh, yeah, I'm glad we're talking about this. I could see this going one of two ways. I could see you saying like, oh, the the way they write about high schoolers is so unlike what I see in my classroom every day. Or I could see you going, it's way too much like what I see in my classroom every day. That's my real life. I need to change a pace in my literary life. Yeah, I think it's more the former, mm -hmm. the one where I I don't see it in my life. And it just feels overwrought and, and a little exaggerated. And I, yeah. All right. We will keep those off your reading list. Yeah. Another thing, I just while we're talking about YA, I wanted to mention Anne of Green Gables, which I love, you know, like everybody. But I remember reading it and I think it's, that's a great YA book. In high school, I read it and I, of course, completely related to Anne. She's so wonderful. She's the manic pixie dream girl that I want to be. <laughs> I just, oh, I love her. But now I reread it again over the summer and I totally relate to Marilla, who is learning to become a mother, is, you know, dealing with this girl who's a little overwrought and, you know, she kind of rolls her eyes at her sometimes, but she's a big part of the story. But it's not just the story of Anne, it's also the story of this woman who's learning to be a caregiver. That's really interesting. Rissy, what are you reading right now? A couple books I just finished. The Wild Things, The Joy of Reading Children's Literature as an Adult by Ooh, Bruce Handy. I keep seeing that. How was it? Oh, it was great. I really liked it. He did have a couple disparaging things to say about Anne of Green Gables, but <laughs> everything else was great. And it made me want to go back and read some of these kid books, I guess you call them like Charlotte's Web or The Cat in the Hat as a literary experience. I really liked it. I would recommend that one. Uh, Also, I just recently finished Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine Mm -hmm. by Gail Honeyman. Mm -hmm. Loved it. Good to hear. Because that's not all, you know, sunshine. and It's not. But at the end of it, there was growth and she was happy at the end. And a really strong sense of uh, community. So weirdly, like all creatures, great and small. Agreed, agreed. Another one that I'm currently reading is The Wine Lover's Daughter by Anne Fadiman. I don't drink wine, but I love Anne Fadiman. And I just barely started Sourdough by Robin Sloan. Oh, yeah. And when I say barely started, I mean I'm on page 10. 
That sounds like a really promising pick for you. I think it is. And there's even a quote that I thought related to what should I read next, where she says, I'm from the Harry Potter generation and we like to be sorted. We like to be- <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, sort me. Tell me what books I like. Tell me what personality I am. Rissy, is there anything else you want me to know about what you want more of in your reading life or what changes you'd like to make happen before we pick books for you? I do like rounded reading. Like I like to have some fiction, some nonfiction. So a diversity of genre subjects. Yes. I can really relate to that. All right. Well, I have ideas. Are you ready to dive in? I'm ready to go. Oh, this is so exciting. Well, that's funny that you mentioned Anne Fadiman because I was making notes about her essay collection at large and at small. You know what? I own a copy, but I don't think I've ever read it. Well, it feels like cheating to give you another Anne Fadiman title. So we're not going to count that as one of our three, but it sounds up your alley, especially if you're reading a book by her right now. If you're enjoying that book by her right now. I am enjoying it. And I really enjoyed Ex Libris by her. Do you, did you ever read that one? Oh, yeah. And it's funny, but smart. Yes. Very good humored. Love mm-hmm. it. And in fact, I love it so much that I made a poster-sized copy of the cover. I framed it and that's what hangs above my desk. Oh my gosh. I love it. Because I love the book, but also it's a really pretty cover and it says Ex Libris and it's kind of bookish. But yeah, I don't think I've read the essay collection. I think that might be to your taste. Have you read... Cold Comfort Farm by Stella Gibbons. I have not. Do you know anything about this? No. It's one of those classics that in 2018, it seems like very few of my peers have actually read. This is gently old-fashioned, or maybe seriously old-fashioned, British humor. And it sounds like on those words alone, we, we could just stop and put it on your bookshelf. I think we could, but please keep going. <laughs> <laughs> this is about a young girl named Flora Post. Her parents die when she's 19. They're, they die in the Spanish flu epidemic and she is left alone and penniless. So she has to throw herself on the mercy of her Sussex relatives who are all a little bit over the top, of course, because that's how you get an interesting story. She decides it's her calling to bring a, I think she calls it a higher common sense to this rural world she's been thrown into. So the opening line is the education bestowed on Flora Post by her parents had been expensive, athletic, and prolonged just to give you a scene of what you're diving into. It's got this air of exuberance. I think joy wouldn't be out of place. It's a little bit ridiculous, but in a fun way. And what I like about this is this is definitely satire. Gibbons is totally lampooning like late Victorian fiction. However, it's not mean. Love it. And I think that's important for you, that it not be too mean. Agreed. That sounds fabulous. I'll put it on the list right now. And also, I do like that that she's written more after this. She has. It's good to find a book, and it's also good to find an author. I wholeheartedly agree. While we're talking about not being mean, I do wonder if you'll like something. Okay. That definitely goes that direction. It's also British humor. It's by Julian Fellows, who was a writer on Downton Abbey. Um, it's called Snobs. Oh, Is this one you know? I have never heard of it. This is his first novel, but he was writing screenplays for years. So this wasn't the first thing that he wrote, but it's called Snobs because his large theme here is snobbery among the the upper class in Britain 
in the in contemporary times. So this came out in 2005. So it's not like it happened yesterday, but it definitely is set in modern times. Okay. There's at least one character in the story. Actually, I think there's several who are total nouveau riche. Like they have money. So they think they can insert themselves into the true blue bloods. Like, does that, does my voice sound sarcastic enough? So like yes. to fellows, that is the makings of high humor. We have some love stories and marital tension, which of course is the stuff for him to like really poke at for um, moving the plot forward. It's been too long since I've read this book. But what I do remember is that you end up with all these people together at a country house, which is a great setup uh, for... That is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's way snarkier than Gibbons. And like not even in the same league in that sense as something... I mean, this is a totally different tone than James Harriet. But I think you might enjoy it because it's funny. Yeah, that sounds right up my alley. Putting this one on the list right now. Excellent. I'm happy to hear it. Okay, for our third book, have you read anything by Lori Colwyn? I don't even know that name. I like her for you because she's funny. She's smart. She was writing, I think in the 60s and 70s. She writes really wonderful food memoirs. Home cooking is my favorite. But she also writes fiction that has the kind of tone I think you're looking for. It's not sappy and it's not sentimental, but it's sweet. It's stories of every day. Uh, Many of her stories are set in Manhattan. I don't know if that sounds like fun to you or not. But the one I would recommend starting with is called Happy All the Time. It's about two men who are childhood best friends. And actually, they happen to be distant cousins and they marry, their lives are intertwined. And she writes about the everyday relationships in a way that's smart and fun and really discussable too. I don't know if you're a book clubber or... I want to be a book clubber. (laughs) I just need to find a good book club. (laughs) There's a... Oh, I hear you. I think a lot of readers are in that same boat. But even if you don't have other people to talk about these with, even if you don't push them on your students and they want to talk about them with your students, um, there's a lot to discuss, a lot to think about. They're entertaining and they're light, but they're not empty. You know, like some books, you read them and they're fun and they just go really quick and then you're like ah that it it just feels like it's poof gone i've heard those called marshmallow books where like they go down sweet but there's Mm -hmm. not a lot of substance that says colwin doesn't write exactly what you mean i like the idea of something that's not that (laughs) and when i read these books i think oh i would love to have dinner with you she's good at the quip and the like the wry observation but not mean just sharp it's a good combination can i hit you with some more please Oh, yes. I can't end our conversation without saying, if you do love to read stories of vocation, Parker Palmer's Let Your Life Speak is a nonfiction book that's really excellent on that note. I don't know if that's one you're familiar with or not. The subtitle is something about vocation, and he's writing about his journey, finding and clarifying his own. And he just tells really quiet, modest, really funny stories about his chain of exploration and self-discovery that led him to be, let's say, content, feeling like he knows what he's supposed to be doing in the world. I love Gail Godwin, Father Melancholy's Daughter, and Evensong. Those are two books that go together, but don't have to be read one after the other or even together. And those are really lovely books about vocation. I mean, that's not what the jacket says, but that's a prominent theme that goes through the books. And I just love them both. And also, I think as a reader and as someone who likes books Uh and humor. If you've never read Eats, Shoots, and Leaves by Lynn Truss, is this one you know? 
I do know it, but I have not read it. It's so funny. I've heard good things about it, though. I love I love the title, Eats, Shoots, and Leaves. <laughs> like, it's about punctuation, right? The Zero Tolerance Approach to Punctuation is the yeah. subtitle. <laughs> it's just really fun and funny. You could totally read it before bed, close the book, and get a good night's sleep without staying up all night, worrying about the fate of the characters. Oh, that sounds ideal. I hope you enjoy it. I will read it, and I'm sure I will enjoy it. Well, I can't wait to hear what you think. Rissy, of all the titles we talked about, what do you think you'll read next? Well, I think I'm going to start with The Cold Comfort Farm because that has been on my to-read list for a long time, so I feel like it's time to jump in and tackle that one. And after that, I think I'm going to go for Snobs. That sounds great, and I can't wait to hear what you think. Oh, I can't wait to report back. Rissy, thanks so much for talking books with me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rissy today. Head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for Rissy and let her know there what you thought of my recommendations. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 123, that's 123, and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Next week, I'm welcoming friend of the show, Sarah McKenzie, into the studio to chat about how reading out loud has forged unique connections with her teens and tweens. Here's a sneak peek of what's coming. Well, it gets more valuable too as your kids get older, right? Because as your kids get into their tweens and teens, sometimes those big topics that either you don't really want to talk about, but you know you should, or that are just maybe kind of uncomfortable or they're just not normal dinnertime conversation. Kind of like you're saying, you know, sit down with a stranger and ask them about grief. Even with our kids and especially our teenagers, it's not always natural to just start, you know, you don't want to sit across from them and say, okay, let's talk about the meaning of life, you know, but the (laughs) books actually like provide this gateway, make it really casual. And then I think what happens is you get into the habit of talking about big things together and that just being like a, or sometimes not big things They don't always have to be big, heavy topics, right? But just this normal experience of stories and discussion and talking about ideas and how they affect us or how they affect the characters, the books or whatever. It ends up just shaping the way you you have uh, interactions with your tweens and teens, which is really helpful, especially as they get older and things get a little bit different. (laughs) If you can't wait until next week to hear more, Sarah was a guest in November 2016 during our special Reading for a Lifetime series, which around here we affectionately called What Should I Read Next for Kids? It's so fun. We take kids' requests submitted via audio for book recommendations and answer them on the spot. Hop back to episode 49 to hear our chat about helping kids fall in love with reading. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.